to see you this morning, and I am thrilled that I get to do this teaching today with Pastor Craig Reese. Yes, he just got back last night from India, had a couple of delays along the way, wondering whether or not he was even going to make it back or if I got to do this solo today, but great that, that he's uh, able to be here and that we get to tag team today. And a warm welcome to those of you online. So great that our online campus is joining us this morning as well. We are in part seven of a seven-part series, which means today we are concluding Kingdom and Empires. And it is going to be, we think, a really, really helpful morning of pulling together a number of themes, the kind of the core idea that we've been doing for the entire service or the whole series and just really be able to nail it one more time in this series. And so um, I'd like to invite you to turn with us to Exodus chapter 15. And here's what uh, we'd like you to do is that if you need a copy of scripture today, throw up your right hand. Now here's the other thing. All of you should have gotten a pen when you came in today from one of the ushers, okay? Not just any pen, like a pen that has kingdom and empires, it has co-writing the future, the name of today's teaching. If you need one of these, because everybody needs one, throw up your left hand and our ushers will get you one of those. That means if you need both a Bible and a pen, you give us the touchdown sign. All right, and the ushers will make sure that they get those to you. But everybody's going to need a pen for the last part of our service today. Not just a pen, but the pen. So our ushers are working on that, doing a great job. We put them on overtime today. All righty, while you're getting a pen and a Bible and going to Exodus chapter 15, for those of you who are just joining us in this series, we have been talking about something entitled the kingdom of heaven, which is synonymous with the kingdom of God in the gospels. And here's the definition, the working definition we've been using throughout the series, that the idea of the kingdom of heaven is the rule and reign of God advancing here on earth, bringing healing and wholeness. That starting with Jesus and John the Baptist, that God's power of redemption was breaking into human existence unprecedented in human history. And that for Jesus, he kept saying the kingdom of God has arrived and it's already and even more to come. But that God was doing a work in the world. And we've been talking about our lives and how we fit in to this storyline. And as we have been praying this morning, as we've been aware of the, the tragedy in Paris yesterday, in Indianapolis earlier on this week with Davy Blackburn and his wife Amanda, and by the way, just be praying for that whole community. Tonight is the funeral. Uh, Pastor Perry Noble from New Spring is going to be uh, a central part of that service. And just be prayer for him to, to speak the words of God out in the midst of an absolutely painful situation. The whole United States is watching on this. And we just pray that somehow God, through this tragedy, would work in a way that his kingdom would come, that lives would be transformed and changed as a result of people's faith being put on display in the hardest moments of life. So just kind of keep them in mind. But we're, we're aware of this. this. This week has again reminded of us of the world that we live in, the broken nature of it, and how desperately we need God's shalom, God's wholeness, his, his peace to inbreak into people's lives and circumstances. Now, this kingdom of heaven language uh, shows up first in the New Testament. And here's what's interesting is it does not show up in the Old Testament at all. Now, in week three, Craig showed a graph of all the different allusions or alludings to the kingdom in the scriptures that encompassed a lot of passages from the Older Testament, but the phrase kingdom of heaven never shows up in the Older Testament. 
For those of you who are aware with other forms of literature that have been found through archaeology and from the ancient world, the kingdom of heaven does not show up in the Dead Sea Scrolls. It does not show up in the Apocrypha. It does not show up in the Pseudepigrapha. It does not show up in apocalyptic literature. The only other place where the phrase kingdom of heaven shows up and it actually predates the New Testament is the writings of the rabbis, classical rabbinical literature. This is the, the sayings and writings of the rabbis predating the day of Jesus that talked about this thing called the kingdom of heaven. They were the ones that put the language around this, that formalized the language. That's why when Jesus comes on the scene and the first words out of his mouth are, the kingdom of heaven has come near, everybody understood what he was talking about. Or at least they thought they knew what he was talking about. But the concept of God's power, God's rule, God's reign breaking in was something they were all aware of because the rabbis had been talking about it for years before Jesus ever came on the scene. And it was according to the rabbis as this literature leading up to the first century world that they said the first time that we really see a strong presence of the idea of the kingdom in the Older Testament is in Exodus 15. So that's why we're beginning there today because we believe that what happens in Exodus 15 in the story just before that and what happens just a few chapters after that sets a movement, sets a foundation for an understanding of what a Christ follower is supposed to be and do in the world. And so come with me to Exodus chapter 15 if you're not already there yet. And the context is this. God has rescued and redeemed Israel out of their slavery in Egypt. He's done that with a mighty arm, the 10 plagues. He's brought them out into the Sinai Desert. The Egyptian army is on the heels of the Israelites. They come to the Red Sea, or the text literally says, Reed Sea. And then God separates the waters. Israel goes through, and as they're coming through, the Egyptian army pursues. And as Israel exits out the east side, the wall of waters come down on the Egyptian army. And so what we have is that Israel is standing on the eastern shore of the sea. And this is what we read. Chapter 15, in fact, let's go to chapter 14, the last verse 31. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in Moses, or excuse me, put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Both horse and driver he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. And then they're going to keep going, because they're really excited about what God has done on their behalf. Then notice what happens in verse 18, still part of the song. This is what the people say. The Lord reigns forever and ever. So they're on the eastern shore, and they make this massive proclamation. The Lord reigns forever and ever. Now the word reigns here in Hebrew is the word yimlok, which is connected to the Hebrew word melech, which means king. So this word is connected to king, to reigning, to kingdom. And the, and the rabbi said this is where it first appears as far as the Israelite nation recognizing God as king. Now, interestingly, at the moment they make this proclamation, God basically says, okay, now we got to leave the sea and we've got to go to Sinai because we need to have a conversation there about what this implies. 
It's as if God says, that is really great that I have shown up and done something for you. That's really great that you proclaim me king, but now we need to go to Sinai and let's talk about this relationship because God says, I didn't rescue and redeem you simply because you were enslaved. I didn't simply rescue and redeem you so that you could just live your life going, well, I've been saved. God goes, I've rescued and redeemed you for a purpose. That purpose is for the restoration of all things. God goes, you and I, we're gonna partner together to start bringing some shalom back into a broken and dark world. And so when God brings them to Sinai, he gives them Torah, which this is gonna sound very familiar to many of you because I've said this a number of times and I'm gonna keep saying it over and over and over again until we've got this, is that we translate Torah as law. God gave the law. Well, it doesn't mean law and how we think law. Torah literally means teachings, instructions, God's instructions for life, God's way of saying to Israel, listen, this is how we're gonna partner together to bring goodness and wholeness back into this world. But you have to understand what that relationship looks like. And so God teaches them how to live out of their salvation, if you will. See, there's an interesting movement that happens with God showing up the way he did in Egypt and then at the Red Sea and then also at Sinai. There's a three-part movement that we see going on in all of this. And it goes something like this. Part one is this. God acts with power. With the plagues and with the Red Sea, God acts with power. And then on the eastern shore, we see that the people proclaim him king. This is an acknowledgement. This is a profession, if you will. And then God brings them to Mount Sinai so that they can do what he says. God acts with power, people proclaim him king, and they do what he says. Now, let's put single words next to these. God acts with power. You could say that's grace. Israel didn't deserve this. They didn't earn it. They didn't do anything. God did something for them that they could not do for themselves. And then on the eastern shore of the sea, there is a recognition an acknowledgement, a profession, if you will, a profession of faith in that God is king. And then at Sinai, God goes, okay, now you have a responsibility, a responsibility to live this out. It's all wrapped up together because the moment God does something, there's a two-part response. We come into relationship, but now there's a responsibility to follow indeed. Several years ago, one of my dear friends and mentors is a guy by the name of Jeff Mannion, senior pastor at Ada Bible Church, and he had this statement that stopped me dead in my tracks because it epitomized for me so much of how I spent part of my life living, but what I think also many Christians do as well. Here's what he said. He said this, we hire Jesus as our savior, but we fire Jesus as our teacher. Perhaps in the context of our series, we could just put it this way. We want Jesus to be our savior, but we don't want him to be our king. We love the idea that Jesus does something for us. We love the idea that he is savior. We love the idea that he took our sin on behalf of himself, that we can be made right with God. We love the idea that Jesus has saved us, but we struggle with the idea of Jesus now being our king. Because when Jesus becomes king of every aspect of our life, that's exactly what we've done. We've given him every aspect of our life. 
We're saying, Jesus, how do you want my life to run? What do you want it to look like? Every facet I give to you. Yes, Jesus, you are Savior, and that's how we understand him first and foremost. But Jesus says, I just don't want to be your Savior. I also want to be your King. I want to speak into every aspect of your life. I want you to relinquish every facet of your life so that I can work in you and through you and that we can work together for good in the world. For Jesus, it's not just an intellectual affirmation. We just say, you're Lord and God. For Jesus, it also entails a responsibility as well. And nowhere do we see this more boldly on the lips of Jesus than in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7. We'd like to invite you there, and Craig's going to walk us through this passage. Thanks, Brad. So Brad has said, look, when we look at the Old Testament, we see God acting with power that brings his people to a moment of recognition, profession, acknowledgement, that leads to them taking responsibility. That's Sinai. Recognition and responsibility. When we move into the New Testament, into Matthew uh, chapter 7, which is part of the Sermon on on the Mount, we see Jesus bringing these two components of recognition and responsibility into the Christian teaching. Now, Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is a part of what we call Sermon on the Mount. Some people look at that as prescriptive language, Jesus pointing the finger and telling us what we would do. That's not the language. This is descriptive language. This says, when a person has seen the power of God in action, this is the kind of life that they live. And you see the recognition component, you see the responsibility component being worked out to you. Have a look with me at verse 21 of Matthew chapter 7. Again, recognition, responsibility, profession, and then that, that response that we have to it. Verse 21 is a famous verse. If I say the first few words, probably many of you here who have been brought up in church will be able to complete it. This is what we read. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now, notice here, Jesus uses this phrase, enter the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven basically became the kind of buzz phrase for the Jesus movement. Now, what we mean by that is is pretty simple. If you have a look at the verse again, it says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, capital L, Lord, capital L. Back then, if you were to address a a rabbi, you would go to the rabbi and say, hey, rabbi. Now, if you'd address him that way, you're basically saying, look, we know that you are a teacher, but we're not necessarily saying we agree to do everything that you teach us. Now, understand, back in the Hebrew culture, there is no distinction between saying one thing and doing another. If you follow a rabbi, you would ultimately do what the rabbi says. So, if you would go to a rabbi recognizing their office, you would say, Rabbi, ask him a question. They tell you the answer. But you're not necessarily agreeing to do what the rabbi says. But if you go to the rabbi and you would say, Lord, usually with a lowercase l, then there's some kind of profession that's going on here. Uh, The idea here is that there's some kind of acknowledgement that this rabbi is speaking truth that you desire to follow. But what Jesus says here is interesting. He says, not everyone who calls me Lord, Lord, capital L. Now, this is important because students of Matthew's gospel will tell you that whenever someone approaches Jesus with faith in Matthew's gospel, they always use this capital L, Lord. All of the sick people 
who get healed in Matthew's gospel come to Jesus and say, Lord, capital L. It's an acknowledgement of faith. So Jesus says, not everyone who comes to me with an acknowledgement of faith will enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, if we stop there, that's pretty troubling, wouldn't you say? But that's where you've got to go back to the first week when we started this series and we said, there's something missing. Far too much of our gospel presentation has been about this moment of decision, that when we make that moment of decision, that recognition, it somehow offers us a free pass into a heavenly amusement park when we die. But that's not what it's about, as is demonstrated by the last part of the verse here. But only those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. The natural question someone's going to ask here is, well, what is the will of your Father? Well, Jesus has already told them that in chapter 6. They came to Jesus and said, Jesus, teach us to pray. They don't ask him to teach him how to do evangelism or teach him how to teach. But seeing his prayer life in action, they say, we want to pray like you, Jesus, so tell us how we pray. And what does he say? Our Father, who art in heaven. Remember Psalm 115, verse 16? Heaven is the, the place where God is, where his rule and reign is uncontested and absolute, but the earth is given to us. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. Where? On earth as it is in heaven. So there's the recognition on the one hand, recognition that Jesus is my Lord, that truly when it is the recognition that Jesus is my Lord results in a responsibility that a person takes to follow the teaching of Jesus. Because remember, you go to a rabbi and you say, Lord, you're actually saying, I'm going to base my life on the teaching and the interpretation of the Torah, of the teaching that you give me. Recognition, responsibility. The idea that we can put our faith in the Lord Jesus and not have it matched by doing what Jesus wants us to do is not a concept of faith that the New Testament teaches. And this idea that the church today can actually lead people, lead people into an easy believism that doesn't demand that every person says, Lord, how do I work to bring your rule and reign in this earth just as it is in heaven? Hasn't really got a biblical faith. There's a guy by the name of Dwight Pryor who's written an excellent book on the kingdom, a short book. And he is a phrase, and he says this. Have a look at this. When Yeshua, Hebrew for Jesus there, speaks of the kingdom, he identifies himself as the king. And he emphasizes the dynamic activity of his reign and the power of the Holy Spirit. But he also uses kingdom language to refer to those who entered his movement, who are walking after him in discipleship and keeping his commandments. Isn't this the Great Commission? Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And what is the mark of these disciples? Doing everything I have commanded you. If we truly recognize who Jesus is and who he is, it leads to a responsibility that we accept to do what he tells us to do. So what we're seeing here then is that both, and you see this on the screen, being part of Jesus' kingdom movement involves both faith and relationships and action. 
faith and action. I spent a lot of time over the last uh, two days, Friday morning at uh, about, what is it, uh, 9.30 Friday morning your time, I left uh, to come back home, and I spent an awful lot of time in an airplane. Now, a simple question, how many wings of an airplane does it need to fly? Two, right? It's exactly the same with the Christian faith. A Christian faith is a faith that is expressed through not just profession, but also through action. This was made abundantly clear to me last week as I was in India. I want to thank you all for uh, praying for me. I got back yesterday, and I flew back through Paris. And that airport, I've flown through it a number of times. I don't like that airport. It's awful. But yesterday, it was a nightmare. Uh, police everywhere, military presence everywhere, and the flight was delayed out just to allow people to try and get on the plane because the city was on pretty much on gridlock. It was shut down. And I'm really thankful to be a part of a, of a church that did pray for me. As I got off the plane, I saw all of the security everywhere. I thought, man, what's going on here? I had no idea what had unveiled when I was on the plane from Mumbai. And then I turned my phone on, and I get all of these messages, are you okay, and everything else. And it was uh, really good to have you uh, pray for us. But I went to India to teach pastors. The, the picture you're going to see now is actually a picture that I took while I was on the stage just preparing to teach. Most of these are first-generation Christian pastors, lots of them very young. Came to Christ, converted out of uh, Hinduism, most of them Buddhism, some of them, and have come to Christ. And it's very interesting that when you're there, you get that sense in that culture that they recognize that there are two components to an expression of faith. The first part is recognizing who Jesus is. He's not one of many gods, but is the, He is the eternal Son, the only name under heaven and earth, they say, by which man can be saved but they recognize that there's a responsibility that they have to follow his teaching. And many of the pastors you're looking at on that photo have accepted that responsibility to follow after the teaching of Jesus, and they have been kicked out of their homes, disowned by their families. And it's incredible when you, you hear uh, people stand up there and, and actually profess their faith, and they talk about being a Christian family. You talk, you, we talk about that, right, being the family of faith. Well, guess what? It really is their family not just a faith family, that's the only family they've got because their family has disowned them. We are so blessed to live in a country like this. But I'll tell you what, living in a country like this, with the way that we present the gospel, often makes us think the profession, recognition is enough. Not everyone, Jesus says, who calls me Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but those who do the will of my Father. There was one particular pastor, I'm going to call him John. You'll see his photo now. He is the guy in the patterned shirt there with the beard. He's one of those pastors I talked about, born into a very wealthy Hindu family. But behind the, the religious appearance, there was a, a disturbing reality of a father who would batter his wife and many of the children. John said he was so depressed he felt like committing suicide. And then one day he, he went out into a village, heard a man talking about Jesus, 
that's uh, Dr. Matthews' father there. That's Dr. Finney Matthews. Uh, he leads the ministry that I went out to speak at and actually gave his life to Christ, and it totally transformed him. And get this, he read his Bible, and as he read the New Testament, he came to the end, Matthew chapter 28, go into all of the world. He recognized that he had the responsibility to do that. Nobody trained him to do that. Nobody told him to do that. He just read the Bible and said, that must be for me. So guess what he did? At the age of 14 years of age, he started to go around to the villages to proclaim the gospel of Christ. 14 years of age, there started to be fruit. The Hindu fundamentalists didn't like it. Went to his father and said, do you know what your son is doing? His father was a, an influential person in that entire area. And the father told him he had to stop proclaiming his faith in Jesus. He said, I can't do that. So the father disowned him. And uh, Dr. Matthews there shares about that time when this all happened, that uh, Finney invited John to the front of the church and said, John, look, your faith family. That night, John was baptized. His father was actually there in the auditorium, and his father was shocked because he thought by disowning his son, withdrawing all of the money from him, his son would basically be choked, suffocated to coming back and recanting his Christian faith. What he never expected was a Christian community to actually do what the Bible called them to do, and that was to truly live as a family. John went on, he trained in the ministry, and he now pastors seven churches in that area where he went around as a 14-year-old as a boy. The bottom picture there is first generation, first generation, hope you understand that, first generation. They're the only Christians in their family. First generation Christians who are about to get baptized, and they were going to do that under John's ministry. I, I saw firsthand there, Matthew 7, 21, in practice. The two components, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven, recognition and responsibility. Now, to, to, get, the, to get the message over, Jesus actually doubles up here. Look at verses 22 and 23 of Matthew 7. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, capital L. Notice that. Okay, that's important. Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me, you evildoers. What's the point? Simply having a, a profession of faith. Okay, I recognize who Jesus is. Making that, praying that prayer, but not living in the dynamic nature of that faith. is isn't kingdom faith either. You see this today all too often when, when a ministry will start to, to become more humanistic. It will leave its relationship with Jesus' roots. It, it recognizes the responsibility that we have to, to feed the poor, to clothe those who have nothing, to put the lonely in families. But we miss out on proclaiming that all of this is done in the name of Jesus. What we have is Christian socialism, Christian humanism. Jesus says that isn't biblical faith either. To do the deeds, but to not do it out of an active relationship with me, Jesus says, isn't the kind of faith that typifies my movement either. Can you see what's happening here? This pattern that is established in the Old Testament with recognition and responsibility is actually at the heart of the Christian faith. 
And rather than don a secondhand car salesman outfit and try to undersell the gospel, what Jesus does is he raises the stakes. Listen, if you claim to have a faith in me, then I want to see the relationship and I want to see you take the responsibility to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. That's your responsibility, Jesus says. Now, this is something that is actually jumped on by Paul himself. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. I want to read a couple of verses here from Ephesians 2. And uh, I want to go to verses 8 and 9. Again, for many of you, you won't even need to, to look at your Bible. You know them. But remembering this pattern, look at what Paul says. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. We see this, right? Recognition, recognizing who Jesus is, acknowledging that, making that confession of faith, that profession of faith. Many of us stop there thinking this is the crescendo of the passage. It's not. Verse 10 is the crescendo of the passage. If we're going to quote Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 to someone about salvation, make sure we quote verse 10. This is the crescendo. Look at this. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. What is the good work? The good work is to bring in the rule and the reign of God on earth as it is in heaven, because that brings healing and wholeness. This is the message. It's the message in the Old Testament. It's the message of Jesus. It's the message of Paul. It's also the message of James. James says, you show me your faith through what I say. I will show you my faith through what I do. Some people say, ah, Paul and James contradict. Well, not if you actually take Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. They don't. It seems to me as though Paul and James are actually restating what Jesus himself proclaimed. That having a Christian faith ultimately means recognizing who he is and accepting responsibility to do what he says. That's the Christian faith. And as we move on from here, we see that that has implications for us. And with that, I'll hand back over to Brad. something he was passionate about. <laughs> this is a passion that we both have because we recognize that when, when, when Christians recognize that the end of the goal, the, the goal in all this is not salvation, but salvation is the beginning then God can do some really great things in the world. Now, God can use and do great things without us, but God, since the beginning of the biblical story, said, I want to partner with you. I want to partner with you. And this is something that Jesus says in a really key moment as well in Luke chapter 17. So this is the passage we're going to land on. We're going to offer some thoughts out of it. But Jesus is having a conversation with some Pharisees, and the Pharisees ask Jesus a question. Notice with me Luke 17, verse 20. And as you're finding that, let me just go ahead and begin, because uh, we're going to take a short break, just a few words in. Once, on being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come. Okay, all throughout this series, Craig and I have been saying, like, the kingdom has come. And it's not just our words, these are the words of Jesus. And so it's odd here when you read this in the context of what we've been teaching over the last six Sundays, and you go, well, why are they asking about when the kingdom is going to come? 
Well, Jesus' first words out of his mouth in Mark, which Craig talked about in week one, Jesus said this, the time has come, the kingdom of God has come near. Craig talked about that has come near means it's now, it's present. We're talking about the kingdom is already and then even more to come in the future. But this is the key word in this phrase, repent and believe the good news. The word repent, as Craig talked in week one, is metanoia. It means to change your mind. The people understood the idea of the kingdom of heaven, but when Jesus shows up on the scene, he goes, okay, it's here, but it's going to come differently than what you think. You're gonna have to change your mind on some things. See, again, the expectation among the people is that when the Messiah would show up and usher in the kingdom of God, like God was going to take out the Romans, it was gonna be a big military battle, it was going to be all of these observable signs. They wanted the hammer, and Jesus said it's kind of like a mustard seed. Yes, notice how it continues Jesus replied, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, nor will people say here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. Jesus is not going to come with those massive signs you're looking for, but here's, here's how it does come. And he prefaces it by saying it's within your midst. Now, some of your translations may say the kingdom is within you. It's been footnoted in most Bibles now, and other Bibles are just completely leaving that translation option off the table because they recognize in the context of the rest of the kingdom narrative, like that doesn't make any sense. The kingdom is something you enter into. It's not something that's inside of you. By the way, if you say it's inside of you, this is the proof text of the North American New Age movement. Okay, Jesus isn't... isn't perpetuating a new age movement. But Jesus says something, he says, the kingdom is within your midst. Now, for the weight and gravity, significance, implications of this phrase, I think the best person that has written anything on this is Tom Wright. In Luke for Everyone, a book that he wrote on the Gospel of Luke, this is what he says about this phrase. It is astounding. He writes this, the phrase is more active It doesn't just tell you where the kingdom is. It tells you that you've got to do something about it. It is within your grasp. It is confronting you with a decision, the decision to believe, trust, and follow Jesus. It isn't the sort of thing that's just going to happen so that you can sit back and watch. God's sovereign plan to put the world to rights is waiting for you to sign on. That is the force of what Jesus is saying. It is within your midst. It is waiting for you to sign on. Here's that point in the teaching where I need you to pull out that pen. Not just a pen, but the pen that you got today. And I want you just to hold it within your grasp. You will notice that on the pen it says, co-writing the future. Friends, you have the opportunity to co-write the future with God. That God has allowed the opportunity for you and me to partner with God to bring shalom in the midst of a broken and dark world. We get the opportunity to partner with God. The question is, have you signed on? It's within your grasp. It's within your reach. Have you grabbed, gone out and grabbed that pen? Have you grabbed the idea and say, God, I'm in. And I'm going to take this pen. I'm going to take my life. 
and I am going to co-write the future with you. I am going to play my part in joining you to do what I can in this world, empowered by your Holy Spirit, with the name of Jesus at the forefront, to do the good deeds that you have prepared in advance for me to do. Have you signed on? Maybe for some of you, this series, this morning, have come to the recognition that Jesus for you has just been an intellectual affirmation. I called him Lord and God. I said the prayer. I came forward. I raised my hand. But maybe you're recognizing this morning that Jesus is calling you into discipleship. Because in the Bible, conversion is never the end game. Discipleship is. And discipleship subsumes conversion. It's a recognition that you come and you've made a pronouncement, but now you're actively seeking to follow after Jesus. Maybe you could think about it in terms of this way. Let's say your life is a book, and I go in to a bookshelf, and I pull that book off the bookshelf, and I start summing through all of your chapters up to today. What would I read What kind of a story have you been writing with your life? Has it been a kingdom story? A story of shalom? Maybe, maybe not, but the truth is we can't change anything in the past, right? So, so let's, let's go to today. This is today. What do you want the chapters to come to look like? What do you want your legacy to be? And recognize, I'm not talking to those of you in your 50s, 60s, 70s, or 80s right now. I'm talking to everyone. I'm talking to you if you are 10 years old in this room right now. Because we were reminded this week, everything can change in an instant. We don't have guarantees of tomorrow, of next month, of next year. So this is a question for every one of us in the room to ask right now. What do we want the chapters to come to look like? And how are you writing a story that's bringing other people along as well? I mean, what does your story to come look like with your family? What kind of a kingdom story are you writing with your family? What kind of a story are you writing with your spouse, with your kids, with your friends. I mean, what would it look like to write such a story that when people see your story, when they read the story of your life being played out, they go, I can tell you right now, that is a kingdom writer. Like that person is writing a great kingdom story, a kingdom of shalom. I mean, look at what is going on in their life. Friends, we are called to be kingdom writers. But here's the thing about writing a great kingdom story. You don't just do it haphazardly. You just don't fall into it. In order to write a great kingdom story, there has to be intentionality to it. Where you look and you say, okay, God, 
This is what you've gifted me to do. These are the friends I get to do with it. This is the, this is the, the husband or the wife that I get to do it with. These are the kids I get to do with it. This is the ministry I get to do with it. This is the work that I get to do with it. God, what do you want me to do? How do I live my life in such a way that I become a kingdom writer, that my story is writing a great kingdom story? Because friends, our story is a microcosm of the story to make it the restoration of all things. And so this is our challenge throughout this entire series is is how do we join this movement? How do we write a great kingdom story? So here's what we want you to do. I want you to grab out a piece of paper. You can use your bulletin. You can use some notes if you want to write it in your Bible around Luke 17. You can do that as well. I've got a piece of paper here, and I'm going to write it as well. Bring out the pen that's got co-writing the future on it. And here's just a statement we just want you to write. I want to challenge you just to write this down as a way of saying, I'm all in. I am sold. Just write this statement talking about your story to come. I will write a great kingdom story. Just take a few moments. Craig and I are doing that on stage here as well. Just write the statement down. And here's our hope. Our hope is is that you will leave here today with this pen and that you will stick it in a place where you can see it often. Or you maybe take the card that you just wrote or maybe some of you who are really artistic will take this statement and you'll make it into a piece of artwork that you stick in your home as a way of reminding you on a daily basis, I will write a great kingdom story. I get to co-write the future with God. Dear God, help me to see how I can write such a story. And the question to this then becomes too is then what do you need to do to write a great kingdom story? How has God challenged you this series? What has the Holy Spirit been saying to you? What things do you need to change, modify, add? What do you need to think through? What do you need to ask questions around? What does it mean to look like to do this or that or the other? Because we all want to write a great kingdom story. And this morning as we end out our time, we want to be reminded that in order to write a great kingdom story, We need Jesus to be working inside of us. We need Jesus to nourish us. We need Jesus to accompany us. We need Jesus to drive us. We don't do this alone. We have the King of kings and Lord of lords who wants to remind us again this morning that he set the example we get to follow and he will empower us to do the work that he has ordained in advance for us to do. And so this morning, Craig is gonna walk us through a time of how we get to end our series by partaking in communion. Thanks, Brad. In a moment, we're going to uh, just take uh, communion uh, together, but we do that today, uh, recognizing those two components. Recognition. We take communion recognizing who he is, what he has done. And we recognize that and we say, thank you.
But at the same time, we take that today with these words that we've written in hand. I will write a great kingdom story. We take communion recognizing that there is a responsibility to live out the faith that we profess. For each of us, that's going to look different. Somebody asked me just yesterday, why do you actually like putting your body through so much uh, kind of, uh, so much pre- under so much pressure and just travel around the world? Well, I sat there when I took that photograph um, that you saw earlier on, just of those pastors, it was just before I was going to go and speak. And I was just thankful that God had actually given me that opportunity because church, when I go there and I stand and I look out of all of those pastors that have sacrificed so much, oftentimes they don't know where the next meal is going to come from on their table. I just thank God that he has allowed me and afforded me the opportunity three, four times a year to just go away and be reminded of what it really costs to sacrifice for Jesus. Our sacrifices, quite honestly, fade into insignificance when it comes to people like John. But God isn't asking me to live John's life. God is asking me to live my life with him. And God is asking you the same thing. He's not asking you to live my life or Brad's life or anybody else's life. He's simply saying, would you allow me to live my life with you in your school? in your college, in your workplace, in your home, in your neighborhood, in your town, in your state, in your country. As a citizen of all of these areas, will you allow me to live my life through you? And so we're going to take communion today in that thing. Recognizing who he is. He is the eternal son who took on flesh to live a life that demonstrated the power of God breaking into this world and then going to a cross to pay the price for our sin and to break the controlling power of that sin by rising again. And we're going to take that too, just saying, Jesus, we recognize the example that you've set here. And we take communion today, committing ourselves to make your example, our experience, every day. And so in that vein, I'd like to invite the ushers uh, to come up. We're going to do communion slightly differently today. What we're going to do is we're just going to invite you to enjoy these moments. Meditate. The team are going to sing. And as they do that, you can sing, you can worship with them while you're seated. Then the ashes are going to come and they're going to give you uh, the bread. Hold the bread. Don't take that. They're going to give you the cup. Hold the cup. Don't take that. We'll take the elements together as a family of faith. If you're here and you, you need a gluten-free option just in the table in front of me on the ground floor and also the same in the balcony, there is a gluten-free option. You should just get up from your seat. That will be fine. And just go to the gluten, uh, gluten-free elements and just take those and go back to your seat but church let's just use this time wisely recognizing who he is thanking him for that and saying god we take these elements committing to make 
your example, Lord Jesus, our experience. So let's worship together and let's thank God for what he's done. in this uh, moment is something that uh, never I'll never ever lose the wonder of in this moment we remember what was 
We remember that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, in that last supper, he broke bread, gave it to his disciples. And then he said, this is what I want you to do. I want you to take this bread and eat it, remembering my death. He said, this bread symbolizes my body that is broken for you. And then after supper, he took the cup and he gave that to his disciples and he said, I want you to drink this, remembering the blood that will be poured out for you, the symbol, the sign of a new covenant. And then he said these words, when you do this, this is the apostle Paul, we do this proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. I don't know about you, but when I look and think about the evil in the world that we've seen just this week, I look forward to that day. I look forward to the day when the pain of what is will be taken away, and then the glory of God's rule will be fully revealed. But until then, we take this. Remembering his example, an example of sacrifice, an example of what it means to invest everything, all that we are for the Lord. And so with that in mind, this is the body of our Lord Jesus Christ broken for you, taken out and eat in remembrance of him. In the same way, this cup symbolizes a new covenant made possible through his shed blood. You are forgiven. You're a child of the living God. So with that in mind, take this and drink in remembrance of him. Father, what an awesome privilege it is to do what we've just done. To remember what it is that transpired on that cross what it is that transpired when Jesus rose from that tomb declaring, I am alive. What it is to remember that right now you sit at the Father's right hand interceding for everyone in this room. Father, this morning, thank you for giving us the opportunity to remember. But God, we we recognize this morning that we're here for a purpose. You've invited us to co-write this future with you. You've invited us not simply to say, call you Lord, and that is what you are, but also to do your will. Father, that's going to mean very different things for, for every person in this room. For some of us, it may mean putting a relationship right that's wrong. For others, it's simply going to mean looking for natural opportunities to display act of kindness in the arenas you've placed us in. For others this week, it's going to mean taking that opportunity to share our faith with that person that you've placed in our hearts. God, whatever it means, help us be willing to accept that responsibility. Help us to live with that biblical faith. 
that says and does. And so, Father, we, we thank you today. And we just pray that you would help us do what we've just sung. Be willing to give ourselves away, even as you, Lord Jesus, were willing to give yourself away for us. So, Father, we thank you and we love you. In Jesus' name. God's people said, amen. Thank you for worshiping with us uh, this morning. We trust that you've uh, enjoyed this series in the right sense of the term. We trust that when someone says to you, um, what is the kingdom of God anyway? We trust you'll be able to say, oh, let me tell you about that. The kingdom of God is quite simply the rule and reign of God on earth as it is in heaven that brings healing and wholeness. If we're able to do that, we'll have done the first step. The next step is actually living that out. And with that in mind, I want to invite you to next Sunday. That is the Water's Edge Sunday, our second Sunday. Next Sunday is going to be an incredible Sunday. Every Sunday is, but next Sunday is going to be incredible. Together with Micah and the whole team of people, we're unveiling to you the, the next step in our Water's Edge vision. In addition to what we will reveal, what has already been revealed with La Roca uh, becoming a campus of Central, uh, Pastor Jose will be here on the stage. I believe some of their musicians may well be playing with, uh, with some of ours. So we will be uh, commissioning him, celebrating together with him. But we've got other things that we're going to tell you that we're really pumped about. And that is, again, uh, the next step for us, recognizing what God has called us to do as a church. Not be focusing on our own interests, but live with a kingdom vision has meant that we're pursuing unique ways of doing ministry that we're going to share with you at next week. So please be here next Sunday. If you're going to be away, tune in through our internet campus. You don't want to miss next Sunday. It is going to be a great Sunday. So before then, we've got lives to live out there with His glory and for His glory and under his anointing. So let's just pray together. Stand with me as we pray and leave. You are the children of God and we are one faith family. But as we've gathered as one, we scatter as one to many places, to many tasks, to many challenges. As you go, go in grace, go in peace and go and do the anointing of the Spirit of God for every task you face. God bless you. Thank you for worshiping with us. You guys have a great week. We'll see you all next week. God bless.